Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphen. It's for November 2018. I am writer Hyphen. Rest in peace, William Goldman. Uh, Spider-Man meant so much to me. Lee Zachariah. And with me as always is... I'm writer hyphen critic hyphen R.I.P. Stanley. I loved all the president's men. Rochelle Semenovich. I think we'll get no letters about that. That should be <laughs> fine. Uh, we'll be joined by our special guest, Bryony Kidd, a little later in the show. But before we do, we've seen some films this month. We have. Do you remember what they are? Because I sure don't. Oh, uh, let me kind of think. Ah, uh, the first film I saw was Widows. Uh, Steve McQueen's modern-day heist thriller about four women with nothing in common except the debts left to them by their deceased husband's criminal activities. These men were all killed in an explosion when a robbery went wrong. Leading the pack of wives is Veronica, Viola Davis, the black widow of the mastermind and leader of the thieves, played in flashbacks by Liam Neeson. Rounding out the quartet are Elizabeth Debicki, Michelle Rodriguez and Cynthia Erivo. The film is set in Chicago in the lead-up to an election where racial tensions are running high and corruption is woven into every interaction. Lee, did Widows fulfil all your arthouse Ocean's 8 fantasies? It did. I, I guess, like, as, you know, if you're going to look at it like a heist film, it isn't a particularly satisfying, like, here are all the elements we need in order to pull this heist off type of thing because it's more about the drama behind it all um but yeah i really enjoyed it i think you know we have that thing where we go you know who's a great drama or art house director what if we threw them into a genre film and i feel like at some point someone would have had in some parallel universe someone had a fantasy of what if uh steve mcqueen made a heist film what would that look like and we get to live in the universe where we find out what that's like and uh yeah i'm into it Yeah, well, this film was written by McQueen, who, of course, did 12 Years a Slave and Shame and a number of other amazing films. Written written by? Um, It was written by McQueen along with Gillian Flynn, who wrote Gone Girl and Sharp Objects. Gone Girl is a great thriller. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's it's intelligent as well as being a sort of a pot boiler uh, genre film. And I think that sort of combination is here too but I think far more interesting than the actual heist in this film is the treatment of um, race relations Mm. it's just done so seamlessly yeah like I I love a genre film and if I'm going to go into a heist film I want to see you know the mechanics of the heist but I was far more interested in the mechanics of these women's lives and what they were dealing with Mm. Aside from the fact that their their partners were some were abusive, all of them were criminals, all of them left them in the lurch in a big way. Just watching them sort of deal with that, the drama of that, was the most interesting part to me. And I love his bold sort of long takes of the outside of a car as two people you can't see talk inside the car. Yeah, uh, it's it, it wouldn't be up there with my favourite of McQueen's films, you know, 12 Years a Slave and, and Shame in particular. Well, you know, because we talked about those films earlier this mm. year and, you know, they're, they're really great. But uh, I still, yeah, I really enjoyed this. Yeah, well. I'm not a fan of the heist genre, but I yeah. love this um, for its detail and the relationships and the characters. And Viola Davis, she's just amazing. She is, she is great, yeah. Yeah, big fan. Well, the new Coen Brothers film, Ballad of Buster Scruggs, has made its way onto Netflix uh, which is a very strange medium for, you know, a Coen Brothers film, which, you know, always have, have a degree of ornateness to them. They feel mm. like they should be seen on the big screen. 
But uh, this film is a series of six vignettes set in the Old West, different tales. Like It's presented like a book, like you're reading different tales in a, in a sort of collected works thing. I believe it was meant to be six different episodes originally, sort of mm. half-hour episodes, and then they decided to cut it into one film, which I think is a good idea. I like it as an anthology film. Mm. And... Uh, I, I, I just love this film so much. I, I felt like they started with their strongest, like aesthetically strongest mm. one. The actual Ballad of Buster Scruggs is one of the most delightful things. If they'd made a full hour about Buster Scruggs himself <laughs> or a full two hours, it would be one of my favourite films of all time, I think. Uh, I do feel like the film was a slow burn. Having watched it once, I'm like, I feel like I'm going to get more out of these. There's particularly the sixth one. There's a lot going on in that sixth vignette with all the people in the um in the coach coach. the stagecoach just basically talking yeah i think there's something really deep going on in that that i didn't quite register on first viewing um but overall all of these tales of james franco as this hapless bank robber and uh zoe kazan as this you know woman in, in on a trail a stagecoach trail sort of heading off to a new life you know they're these are amazing stories. Tom Waits is this, you know, gold digger, literal gold digger. You know, they've got such a simple, straightforward way of, of, of telling stories that I just adore. And, uh, and yeah, this, is, this was such a delightful film. What did you think? Yeah, look, I really liked it. And the more I think about it, the more I like it. Um, it's very dark. I mean, we have, to, we have to sort of think about the Coens and think that they don't mind going to a pretty dark place for both their comedy and their drama um i think all these films are kind of about death and it's leveling Mm. effects um and so you're going to get attached to some characters and then they're gonna die (laughs) but that's you know that's part of its beauty too my favorite one was the love story the girl who got rattled um starring zoe kazan and bill hex um you know I was quite devastated by this. The cowboys and Indians elements of this film are really scary. It's beautiful. It showcases that widescreen um, landscape of the West, mm-hmm. the old West, the down homey, you know, wagon trail um, and all the dangers and isolation of that. It's just beautifully made, as all the Cohen films are. I am loving the fact that I can watch new release feature films on Netflix and in my bed um, (laughs) or in the bath. And so although I would have loved to have seen it on the big screen, this is really convenient for me. It it really, yeah. I mean, yeah, talking about the medium of the film, it is amazing that something of this quality by the Coen brothers can just be delivered into your house for nothing more than that monthly fee. I mean, it sounds like we're doing an ad for Netflix, but... It is just the way that cinema is changing. Things are changing so fast, you know. Click of a button and we could watch a film of this scale. We don't have to trek out to a cinema, which I think, you know, we've had this discussion before about the difference between streaming and going to a cinema and and that I think we lose something by not making a physical effort to go and see something. But at the same time, just having something like this just appear on your television is just... It was just such a delight. Yeah. I mean, a film I did bother going to see on the big screen was Sorry to Bother You, set in the horrific world of telemarketing. The writing-directing debut of Boots Riley, Sorry to Bother You, takes place in an alternate present-day version of Oakland, where corporations run the world just a little bit more than they do today. 
poverty-stricken Cassius Green, or Cassius, as they say, played by Lakeith Stanfield, is living in his cousin's... No, it's his uncle's garage, actually, with his girlfriend, um, played by Tessa Thompson. She works for minimum wage to support herself as a performance artist. Cassius is desperate for uh, money and has a telemarketing job and when he discovers a magical key to selling over the phone he's elevated into the executive suite and taken to wild parties with the company's cocaine snorting CEO played by Army Hammer in a really great performance I must say this puts Cash at odds with his friends who are trying to unionise and fight corporate oppression that may be worse than they feared Lee, did this film take you into the executive suite or make you run to join a union? Oh, oh, what a choice! Because uh, <laughs> I don't know what the what, what's the answer that means this is a really great film and I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, no, this is this is superb for for a show that's all about auteur, auteur theory. This is a film that really shows this could only have come from one person's brain. Like I'm sure other people could have had similar ideas, but the way in which Boots Riley shows this world that even in like particularly like the little flourishes when he makes these telemarketing calls at the beginning, we see it as his desk drops down into the room of the person he's talking to. In a violent way. In a very violent way and it's It's, it's surreal. It's surreal. And in a film where the surreal is literal this surreal is not literal. And it, it's, it's sort of a great way of, of displacing you from reality in a very, very effective way. There's, there's a lot to unpack in this film, mm. and it's just, it, it's glorious. And I feel it hasn't quite achieved greatness, and I cannot identify the element that is preventing it from that. Because when I think about every part of it, every part works. Yeah, I mean, I think the fantasy sci-fi elements are woven in here with such style and confidence. It's actually funny. I mean, there's, and yet the social commentary that's there is just done with such assuredness, like the moment when um, Cash is just demanded to give a rap to mm. a party because he's black, he's supposed to be able to rap. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's just full of those wonderful moments. But I do wonder, like Corrie Chen, uh, former Hyphenates alumni, um, <laughs> said on Twitter, I think, that she loved this film, but she hated how it made her feel afterwards. And I wonder if the way it finishes is perhaps its weakest point. I don't know. There's something, there's something about... I, I don't know if maybe that f- the film it, just made her feel bad because it, it kind of goes to such dark place, but yeah. it's audacious, it's, it's hilarious. So audacious. Um, mm. This really is one of the must-see films of the year in Definitely. my book. Yeah, agreed. Uh, now, have you seen, speaking of Netflix films, um, The Other Side of the Wind, which is the new Orson Welles film, and mm. when I say new, I mean it's finally been released like 40 years after it was shot. Mm. Um, have, you haven't caught it's this on one. my queue it's on your queue <laughs> I really want to see it well it is should I well <laughs> yes it is I mean this is this is the stuff of legends this is one of the famous lost films uh, I'm even I'm fairly sure I've written an article about lost films that will never be seen and this was one of them it's a, a film that he shot in the 70s uh, this kind of wild experimental mockumentary before people made mockumentaries film about a director at a party it's a rap party for a film that he's making and you see parts of the film and you see parts of the party and it's i don't know if i'm watching something indulgent and experimental that doesn't quite work or a thing of absolute brilliance 
um, I was very confused by it. I was very confused by whether I was witnessing genius or not, and I feel like had it come out in the 70s, we would have had time to absorb it in the time it was meant to be absorbed. Mm. Since then, mockumentary has risen and fallen as a genre. Experimental films have gone in wildly different directions. I feel like it's almost a cliche that a director will hit a point in their career where they start making films about people making films, which isn't a lot of fun for anyone but filmmakers. But, okay, there's an accompanying documentary, which I would very much recommend. Watch The Other Side of the Wind, but then definitely watch The Love Me When I'm Dead, I think it's called, which was released on Netflix at the same time. And it's a documentary about him making this film, and it is beautifully made, insightful, fascinating, and tells a story about a director who is frustrated that everything he made got compared to Citizen Kane because Mm. he made the mistake of making one of the greatest films of all time at age 25 for his Mm. first time out of the gate. And it haunted him because everything was compared to that forever. And Hitchcock kept reinventing himself and he did it so successfully with Psycho and then not so well in his sort of family plot era, like the last few films. He sort of, he was a man out of time. And I kind of feel like that with Wells, but at the same time, what he does with this film is so audacious. I'm like, maybe... yeah, I, Okay, he was a genius, and he was a genius at making very sort of formal films like Citizen Kane that are very controlled and very still, and he was still a genius when he was making films like Other Side of the Wind. It's whether the film that he makes is a, an appropriate vessel for his genius, and that's what I was trying to figure out with... The Other Side of the Wind. I know he's going for something audacious here. I just don't know if it works. There are moments that work, but overall, I'm like, I don't, I don't quite understand if, if what I'm watching is brilliant or, or a mess, which pretty much describes all of art, really. <laughs> and Orson Welles himself, and Orson possibly. Wells. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Although it is that I can already hear like, people listening to this sort of going, that is the problem with the sort of way we lord these canonised filmmakers and sort of assume genius and then see if their work matches what we've assumed about them. So I'm watching this film going, well, I already know the filmmaker is a genius. Does the work live up to his Mm. established genius? Which is not really how we should approach art. And it's probably the biggest problem with auteur theory. But it's a new Orson Welles film, which, you know, is is a marvel in and of itself. And I would recommend it just for existing. Mm, I can't wait to see it. And I wonder how many other unfinished films might be unearthed and um, distributed by online platforms now that that can be done. Yes, yes. Come on, Dave the Clown cried. Let's get out there. Come on, Jerry. You can do it. Over the last few weeks, a number of people have been sharing an article from the BBC. Uh, 209 critics were polled on their 10 greatest foreign language films. About half of these respondents were women, and the resulting list of 100 films only featured four female filmmakers, uh, Chantal Ackerman, Claire Denis, Agnes Varder, and Katia Lund. There are more films in the top 100 directed by men named Jean, uh, seven, than are directed by women. Now, we've talked about this topic before, but what can we draw from this particular revelation? Or we would be mad not to ask 
this month's guest, because in addition to being a filmmaker and a critic, she is also the founder of Stranger With My Face, a Tasmanian film festival dedicated to showcasing and celebrating women genre directors, named by Movie Maker magazine as one of the world's 15 bloody best genre fests. Bryony Kidd, welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates. Hi, Lee. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. Now, what do you think about this list? Because it's not just a... It's not just a we don't recognise female filmmakers and there aren't enough. It's something about the two of those topics combined that sort of make this a particularly spiky issue. And I think this this particular revelation got a lot of people, you know, I, I've, every, everyone I know has shared this article, basically. Um, yeah, I mean, somebody shared it on my Facebook as well. And I think actually it could be because um, one of the people quoted in it is Heidi Honeycutt, who's um, a programmer from LA Film Festival, and she's a friend of mine as well. So that could be why I saw it. But I think it, to me, it just could kind of confirms what I already know. And the great problem with film criticism and recognition of filmmakers in general is, is the way it's constructed around volume to some extent so women are there but they basically can't compete um so I, I sort of thought Heidi's quote was interesting um where she was talking about the invisibility of women basically so you have a pool of eligible films for the for canon fandom which is a good way of putting it and it doesn't include very many films directed by women so you kind of need other ways to create that recognition I suppose what was your response to to that article because I've sort of looking at it from quite a specific point of view I guess well I checked out what the BF this was foreign language films mm. and so I checked out well what are the English language films yeah. by women and I checked out the BFI's top 50 f- films ever made that was um the list that was put out 2018 this year and only, it only had one woman director on it, mm. and that was Chantal Ackerman's. Yeah. Um, I mm. can't remember which film it was. So, like, this is not just about foreign language films. It's all over the shop, and it just... It made me feel really, really emotional and sad, actually. Mm. It's just a continuing problem that women aren't being included in cinema history and in the cinema canon because women are there if you want to look for them. Yeah, they are there, but I think they've just got a smaller number of films. So, I mean, I wrote an article for SBS about this a few years ago, which was about this kind of thing in the Australian context and why so many um, well-known women directors in Australia only have like one or two feature films. Um, And so I couldn't really answer why, but that is the reality where compared to male directors who tend to have a large body of work, they'll typically have, you know, two or three. So it's a really interesting thing that's happened because you can point to women directors who are interesting or successful, but somehow that contribution is dismissed because it's like, well... They made one film that was kind of good, but that could have been a bit of a fluke. And they made another one which was a bit iffy. So that's it. Um, It's about having that body of work that allows people to recognise a woman as a great director. Mm. Because you can't really be considered a great director if you've only made one good film. No, and that's (laughs) one of the things I think is interesting about this show because... um, I don't know how strict you are about the sort of rules of what kind of filmmakers can be discussed, but it is around discussing directors who have a body of work. Um, So that really does limit the selection. I mean, I did think, for example, of talking about Jennifer Lynch 
and she's going great in television at the moment. Like she's her career's um, having an amazing sort of second act, but her body of work in film is still really, really small. Mm. Mm. And she's a, just a classic example. I mean, she made one film when she was really young. It was, treat, it was treated really harshly and unfairly, which was Boxing Helena when she was, I think, like 21 or something. Um, and people came down on that really hard, even though it's actually a great film. And then she sort of went off and didn't make films for 15 years because she was a bit over it. Um, and, you know, went and had a child and, and sort of did other things. And then came back and made um, Chained and... What's the other film called? Surveillance, I think. Surveillance, yeah. that's right. Which are both... Fantastic films, but because there's only the two of them, I think people struggle to sort of see that as a sort of body of work, mm. and they struggle to see what her vision is as a director. Um, mm. She also made that one in India, which was a disaster. But yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. So I mean, she's gone on to be like a absolutely top TV director on The Walking Dead and American Horror Story, and she couldn't be going better. But she hasn't got that recognition that she really should have had. Um, And I don't know whether she'll ever be able to catch up because there's only so much time in a career to be able to make films. Yeah, it's. I mean, you're right about the uh, about like the rules of this show because we do sort of have that five or more rule, uh, Mm. which partly came in when before she was a host, Rochelle here uh, picked Sophia Coppola, and we're like, great, we love Sophia Coppola, and we're really excited to talk about it. And then we sort of found the discussion didn't last as long as. As uh, most and so yeah. we're like okay maybe we need to mix it up a bit say five films or more and at that point we introduced a mini hyphenate segment which we haven't done in a while where mm-hmm. anyone with five or fewer films we would do as sort of an extra like we'd okay. select them and we alternated men and women mm-hmm. which we even talked about Alice Guy Blaché because even though she made hundreds of films we were like well only a couple are available so yeah. let's just talk about her filmography it did get me thinking when you're setting a canon I think ranking them is exclusionary because because there has been that exclusion throughout history that when you go and you look back at the greats purely as you say as a, as a matter of volume there are just going to be more great films directed by men and so at this point in the process if you're going to rank them all that's going to look I love ranking films but it sort of adds to the problem or at least perpetuates the problem mm. in a way which is partly the reason why this show is about celebrating rather than ranking which is a key, yeah. a key thing, but of course, because of the volume thing, most of our guests end up choosing male directors. So it, it's this thing where we sort of find ourselves in a position where we're not just this passive sort of, let's look at something that's been made and then comment on it without affecting it, because the act of celebrating and promoting these filmmakers perpetuates that, I guess, male dominance um, that the article yeah. talks about. Yeah, I think it does, because, I mean, you can think of male directors where this applies, like someone like Donald Camel, who only made a few films before he unfortunately killed himself, and he's a brilliant filmmaker and sort of under-recognised, but for the most part, the well-known male directors have this big body of work, and the women are sort of considered to be an interesting side note, Um, and I've noticed that often in genre, like people like um, Anne Turner with her film Celia. I mean, it has these sort of genre connections to it, but she's only ever going to be a side note to that because she only made one film that touched on those kind of ideas. Um, and she later made um, Irresistible with Susan Sarandon, which wasn't deemed to be that successful. But like the other thing about it that I think is fascinating is when you look at a large body of work of a director, there's quite a lot of them that are not 
dance. particularly amazing <laughs> films. Um, so, you know, to have that luxury, to be able to actually try ideas and try things and fail is what makes a great filmmaker. And so you have all of these women and uh, probably minority filmmakers to an extent who never got past mm. that one or two films that were interesting but not great. So you don't know what the, what they could have come up with if they'd actually been given that opportunity. Is there a solution though? Because people never can stop making lists looking back at like, you know, every yeah. year it'll be the last hundred years, last hundred and one years, you know, these lists are going to keep on coming yeah. without telling people to, I guess, choose films that they may feel they don't love as much as this other film. What What, what is the... What is the solution to redress this balance? Well, I mean, I like lists of films that you should know about that you don't. Mm. I mean, those kind of lists are really powerful. Um, and that's really how I got into film programming in the first place. Um, so Heidi Honeycutt, who I mentioned before, used to run a festival called Viscera Film Festival in LA, which was a women's horror festival. Um, and it was really influential because they sort of toured those short films around it. And one of my films was in it, and through that I sort of understood what she was trying to do and eventually started my own horror film festival sort of directly in response to that. But what was amazing to me about Heidi and and still is interesting about her is she kind of collects women filmmakers, like that's her, her hobby and her passion, and she's writing a big book about, you know, all of the unknown genre women filmmakers. Um, so she's been keeping track of them for years and years. And between me and her and various people in those circles, it's kind of like a game to sort of find people. And it becomes part of my professional life as well with programming the festival. But you develop kind of passion for it. And I think it's something genre fans are very familiar with too, like discovering obscure horror directors from different countries or, you know, I'm going to suddenly specialise in Indonesian horror or... 80s Thai horror or something so it taps into that sort of fandom part of why we love films but it has a sort of more political purpose at the same time so what I would like to see is more of this kind of curation I guess rather than continually banging on about the same the same few filmmakers who are already sort of established in their their status in the canon is kind of set what's the point of going on about them year after year really I mean well Okay, I shouldn't say that because young young <laughs> teenagers maybe need to have that education. But mm. beyond that, the rest of us should be expanding our horizons, not just sort of rehashing the same thing over and over again. And I mean, as critics, I think we also have to be brave and single out films that we love that are by women and look for them rather than just thinking, you yeah. know, than going along with this kind of, oh, yeah, Scorsese and... Well, that, that's been the most interesting thing to me because I started Stranger With My Face Film Festival in 2012, so it's sort of five or six years of looking for work by women. Is often there's these obscure titles that you haven't seen and you look them up and watch them and you're like, this is amazing. Why is no one talking about this? So even from people who are quite, you know, I went to film school, I should know better, but, mm. like you still have this assumption that if something's not very well known, it probably isn't that good. Mm. And it's completely wrong. So, um, yeah, it's quite eye-opening sometimes. So, Bryony, tell us, whom have you picked to talk about on Hell is for Hyphenates? Um, I have chosen the South Korean director Park Chan-wook, 
He is one of my favourite filmmakers, has been since I first saw Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. And I'm by no means an expert on Park Chan-wook, but um, I think that there's a lot to talk about in his work. Um, If you're a fan, that makes you an expert. That's that's (laughs) the ethos around here. Yeah, yeah. One of the things that I have always had in my mind about Park Chan-wook, which is probably a bit weird, but to me he's like a combination of Hitchcock and Jane Campion. And those are two of my other favourite directors. So it's like he sort of draws together those two elements for me. And I think it's something to do with, you know, Hitchcock's later work was a little bit lacking in humanity at times. So he sort of has that stylistic uh, exuberance of Hitchcock, but there's a deeper sense of humanity in a lot of what he does. And then also that really quirky humour that's quite personal that reminds me of some some of Jane Campion's work as well. But yeah, I mean, they're bold filmmakers. Like, they're really not afraid of doing things that are a bit strange or a bit unusual. And the emotion is always really pitched at a high level and incredibly intense. And I suppose sort of genre-defying. I mean, I think that's something that we can talk about with Park Chan-wook is his relationship to genre is quite complicated and quite hard to pin down I think because he moves in and out of genres quite fluidly even within the same film but he's he to me he's like clearly a genre filmmaker so it's hard to actually even pin down what that means but to me he is sort of the essence of why genre filmmaking is great there's just something about his work that struck me at a particular age that was extremely formative I suppose he he was uh also a little formative for me because he was one of those filmmakers who was sort of key in me discovering the world, like world cinema, sort of yeah, going out on my yeah. own. Like it was Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance at the Melbourne Film Festival yeah, where right. I saw that and I was just like completely unprepared for that yeah. film and couldn't tell if I liked it or not, but I knew I would probably not sleep for you know several weeks. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I had that same feeling and this is in, what, 2002 when that one came out mm. and Lady Vengeance was 2005 and I think I saw Lady Vengeance at the MIF as well. I must have because I don't know where else I would have seen it. And I had this feeling like the world of cinema opening up and mm. like, there's these amazing Asian filmmakers that we don't know about and they're so good and blah, blah, blah. But I feel sort of disappointed since then. I mean, I went on to try and discover more about Park Chan-wook, obviously, and some of the other Korean directors, but Korean and Asian film has not come to Australia. Like, mm. it's, it's almost... We're seeing less of it now than we did mm. then. So what I sort of hoped was happening did not really happen. Mm. I think that's kind of sad. But anyway, <laughs> at least, we, yeah, there's new sort of ways for us to discover these filmmakers now, and Park Chan-wook is just moving into um, television, which is really exciting as well. But that's um, in the English language context. Mm. So it's sort of... That's Little Drummer Little Drummer Girl, yeah. On Mm. Netflix, I think. No, I think it's uh, it's playing on Foxtel. Ah, Foxtel, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. It's a BBC thing. Um, So I'm sure that's going to be fantastic, but it's sort of sad that... Sorry, I'm four episodes into it and it is quite good. Oh, great. Okay, yeah. (laughs) Because there was was a rumour he was going to direct Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, and that didn't happen. So it's kind of like watching it going, this is what his John Le Carre looks like. And it's, yeah, Yeah, it's really great. Yeah, excellent. Um, But, you know, like it sort of saddens me that he has to go into English language to sort of get Mm. to that level. Mm. But Mm. I guess that's the world we live in. So So did you, um, after Lady Vengeance, did you you go back and explore 
his earlier films? Um, I think, yeah, I think that's kind of what happened. I, I saw Lady Vengeance and then I went back and watched Mr. Vengeance and JSA, but not his very first one, which is called The Moon is the Sun's Dream, which I've only watched more recently. So I sort of skipped around with his stuff, which I, I suppose is fairly typical of how people discover filmmakers and you know like he had one in 2006 called I'm a Cyborg and it's okay and I think I only watched that in the last few years too and it was sort of I mean he became very well known for what was called the Vengeance Trilogy I mm. guess and so that was the focus of attention for quite a long time until a stoker I guess which was 2013 and I think I sort of maybe also fell into that trap a little bit of thinking that he was like an Asian extreme filmmaker mm because he was well known for that Vengeance trilogy, even though it wasn't really made as a trilogy anyway. That was mm. sort of a selling point. And he sort of got stuck in that label of, like, that's what he's about. He makes these big, violent, crazy films, and he's Asian. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's kind of like... Because um, he did that anthology movie called Three Extremes, which was actually really cashing in on that idea, because it was three Asian directors um, each making a horror short. Um, Which is real, I actually saw that on the big screen and rewatched it the other day. It was yeah. still, yeah, really. It's like it's, him, Fruit Chan, and Takeshi Miyake. It's pretty great. Yeah. yeah. It's a great idea as well. Yeah. But I mean, I think even though I really loved his work, I think I sort of was pigeonholing him in that way because mm. maybe I didn't see JSA until later or something. But. And so he's sort of like, oh, he's a great director, but he does this sort of Asian extreme, blah, blah, blah. But if you really think about it, that's not exactly what he does. And and that's why I think, although I love Three Extremes, his piece in that is one of his lesser works, because it really just is that extreme, but without a really solid character behind it. It doesn't have the depth and the sort of nuance. And what I sort of later came to think of him more as like a literary director because to me I can see so much influence from... I don't know whether there's a direct influence, but like Charles Dickens or something like that. Mm. I know he has cited Dostoevsky and Kafka and various novelists as being influences rather than filmmakers. And then I, I started to think about him more as a filmmaker about ideas and really complex characters. Yeah, he started out as a sort of, you know, academically, I think he, he studied film and he was mm. a critic. So he's mm. one of that, you know, body of great filmmakers who come from that, yeah. you know, from ideas and from thinking about films in a, on a really kind of intellectual level. Mm. But he's managed to bring that visceral sensibility to it. But yeah, and I know, I know that he, he says that he wanted to become a filmmaker seriously when he saw Vertigo. So that was the thing which, you know, it's mm. the famous famous film that tops the list of critics favorite films. <laughs> so he is in that re- really in that vein but it comes from this sort of academic intellectual side but then is also an incredibly visual director mm. and incredibly sort of stylish and, and yeah so he has that incredible sort of contradiction about him i suppose which makes him quite hard to pin down in a way uh, maybe it'd be interesting to talk about the moon is the sun's dream because that's his first feature which I guess is sometime after he had that epiphany about Vertigo and I think it's interesting because I just re-watched it and it's not a great film to me I don't know whether um, either of you have seen it but yeah yeah I mean it's... I wasn't 100% sure what was going on for the most part <laughs> <laughs> well I'll it's, be honest it's it's kind of like um I mean it doesn't really matter the plot doesn't matter that much there's a sort of a gangster who has a girlfriend who's the boss's daughter the boss's girlfriend and he's in love with her and wants to steal her for himself and blah 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 and 
Um, but there's this character that's the photographer who's sort of the protagonist who's observing this more glamorous couple and is in love with the girl as well, of course. Um, and you can see sort of Park Chan-wook in that character because he's a sort of wry photographer type and actually looks a bit like Park Chan-wook because this was in 1992. So you can see him sort of starting to grapple with this genre filmmaking idea and it's got a very sort of film noir kind of feel to it and then it's got some of that hip crime sort of vibe with, you know, pop songs and jazz juxtaposed with violence. And, Mm. like, it has some interesting moments but it's just not a great film and I think one of the reasons why is it doesn't really have a sense of humour. Like, it sort of takes itself very seriously in that sort of film noir way, like, I'm a a moody guy and I'm doing a voiceover and blah, blah, blah. And and you're just kind of like, really? (laughs) Um... (laughs) And so I think something happened between that film and JSA where he sort of found his voice or found what he wanted to do, which was like that, but with the humour and with a more complex way of sort of representing and twisting the genre elements rather than just sort of making a genre Mm. film. Because he definitely does have a sense of humour in his best work, doesn't he? (laughs) He definitely does. I mean, it's not that there's no humour in that one, but it sort of takes itself very seriously as a film and the melodrama, because, you know, it has some of that sort of Korean pop sort of melodrama stuff in it as well. And, you know, it's just straight. It's just like, oh, she's sobbing and she's really upset and there's a pop song playing in that is exactly what we're saying. Like, there's nothing undercutting that. Mm. So, yeah, somehow he went on from that to sort of develop a bit more irreverence or something. But, yeah, I also read something where he said that in his early work, he didn't understand that actors can contribute a lot. Mm. So he used to just sort of tell them exactly what to do and it's scripted like this and do it exactly like this. And then later on, when he had a reading, I think, of one of his films he realised that they had ideas. So (laughs) they started to contribute things. And then his scripts later become really collaborative where he would even go so far as to have like one computer where he was working and then he'd have another one for actors or collaborators to go and write something or work on something. So he's sort of gone from this old-fashioned idea of what a director is to something quite different. And then, you know, he famously often works with the same cast or, you know, various actors reappear over and over again in his work and, you know, several screenwriters and other people that he's worked with repeatedly. So I think it's also a really interesting look at, like, what is an auteur filmmaker? Because on the surface of it, Park Chan-wook is, like, the ultimate auteur filmmaker because he's, like, got his own style, he's very strong, he's very distinct... But if you actually look at his career, the more he collaborates, the better he gets. So it's when he was holding on to this false idea of what an auteur is that his work was not as interesting. That's, yeah, I hadn't actually thought about it like that, but now you mention it, because Stoker is, is it the only film he didn't write, or is it one of the few films it's he didn't write? It's one of the few, uh, there could be another one. Because it was but... written by uh, Wentworth Miller, the star of Prison Break, yeah. who, uh, who had written this film, it was on the blacklist, it was, you know, hadn't been made, it was really popular. Park didn't speak English, and he directed through a translator. It's this English-language melodrama that, that still touches on his favourite themes of, of vengeance. But it's like it's almost like the, the absolute perfect ideal for his hyper-stylized filmmaking mm. is, is that 
melodrama yeah. where you can sort of be funny and weird and you're not quite sure who, you know, if, if you're in a normal family situation or if there really is something going on underneath. And his style just perfectly suits that. Yeah, and he's kind of smart enough to realise, to recognise material when it doesn't matter that someone else has done it, someone in America that he doesn't know. Like, mm. it's in his wheelhouse, so he's excited about it. But he's also worked a number of times with a particular screenwriter whose name is Chung Seo Kyung. That could be wrong. The pronunciation there could be completely wrong. But he's worked with her on several of his well-known films, so The Handmaiden and Lady Vengeance and a few others where I think there's a female protagonist. So I, I would assume that that's probably a deliberate choice to co-write with a woman screenwriter. And I'm really interested that even though she's been involved in some of his best-known films, um, I'm a cyborg as well, I think, virtually nothing is known about her. Mm. I mean, she's not talked about, she doesn't do media as far as I can tell. I'm not saying that that's his fault, but like, <laughs> but again, this sort of auteur idea that exists around someone like that, he's not making the films on his own. He's making them with really interesting collaborators and the choices that he's making in terms of collaborators are sort of part of the art of what he's doing I guess mm. and I mean Stoker's just such a a great example of that in terms of what those actors bring to those roles mm. like you know you've got Nicole Kidman Mia Wasikowska yeah. and even Jackie Weaver three yeah. Australian yeah, three actresses yeah. <laughs> um they just really bring it to the screen, I think. Well, it's interesting looking at him, his work with English-speaking actors because just having recently rewatched JSA, Joint Security Area, which is mm. sort of his first big successful film, mm. there's some English dialogue in that where the main actress in it is actually a Korean actress, but in the story she's playing a Korean-born woman who grew up in Switzerland so she's speaking English and then there's this Swiss soldier that she's speaking to and a couple of other English-speaking scenes in the film. And the acting in those scenes is just really dicey. It's, really. It, it honestly plays like... I've never watched an episode of JAG, but it looks like a JAG fan film. <laughs> like, I remember first seeing it and I, I've, I've seen it a couple of times since and I get the sense every time where it starts in the first time, I'm like, oh my God, what is this? And then the film... Yeah, it gets better, and by the end, I'm like, this is a masterpiece. Yeah, but that it's first so third... weird, because it's such a fantastic film, but there's just something about when they speak English that just does not seem believable. Mm. And I think, I guess it's because English is not their first language, and it's not his language, so it just, something's not quite working there. Yeah. But then when he did Stoker, I guess he cast all... English-speaking people who are native English speakers, so that probably helped a bit. But yeah, you know, he's he's somehow learnt from that, I would say, and and now you know you feel like he could direct any anyone doing anything. But it it doesn't really detract from the film too much because it's it's just an oddity. I want to uh, just jump back to the um, Vengeance trilogy for a bit because mm. this was obviously not just my introduction to Park, but also to Korean cinema mm. and an obsession with that, which lasted a few years in the sort of mid 2000s. I would, I, I love these films. I, you know, ordered this like metal box from Amazon with the old boy with the, you know, several discs of extras and the, the original book and all this, you know, I was just obsessed with it. I showed it to someone once who just very quietly and at the end of it turned to me and said, why would you show me that? <laughs> and I was like, what, what do you mean? It's great. And then yeah. after all those watches, rewatching it the other day for this, I, I, I actually understood why people didn't like it, why <laughs> I had that reaction. I actually had 
a, the complete opposite reaction to the one wow. I, where I just found it really ugly and uh, mean-spirited. And, like, because mm-hmm. Mr. Vengeance is that. That's, like, one of the most... And I don't think I mean this as a criticism, but I think it's one of the most mean-spirited films where I feel like for vengeance to be a really strong driving force, somebody has to be at fault. And in Mr. Vengeance, there's as much accidental tragedy as deliberate tragedy. Mm, yeah. And it's just ugliness after... Like, every moment you can find to make something awful happen, he finds it. And, like, I, I kind of like that, that he, he said... Well, almost what is the most extreme type of this film I can make. Mm. But even with Old Boy, I found, and like, and I didn't find this with Sympathy for Lady Vengeance, interestingly, but with this, those two films, which I've been, I've been lauding for years and years, just this, this watch, it really turned me off. And even the plot line of Old Boy, I kind of, mm. I kind of thought, hang on, this isn't that clever. Like the big twist sort of hinges on the thing that we all assume to be true, which we're told categorically is not true at the beginning. And then it says, oh, no, we were lying, which kind of feels like this storytelling transgression. Can we have spoilers in this? Can we talk about what happens in Okay, I think so. You've, you've all seen Old Boy. <laughs> it's if a bit not, hard to talk about it without having yeah. a spoiler. What do you mean is the big twist? Do you mean the fact that it's his daughter or do you mean something else? No, no, I, I think that. I think the fact that, um, you know, you kind of assume that it's the daughter at a certain point around the middle you think okay well it's obviously the daughter and they go out of their way to say no it's not yeah they do but then they're like oh no we were lying to you and it 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 feels like a little bit of a cheat that didn't bother me because of the the stuff about hypnotism like it's so clear a lot of reliance on hypnotism yeah (laughs) Yeah. which itself is yeah it's interesting yeah Yeah. but it's so clear that like a false reality has been established for him in Mm. quite a convoluted and not very believable way but it's cinematically interesting way. So that didn't bother me. But I do agree that, yeah, my response to Old Boy has changed over time too, and I did find it a bit harder going this time. But the thing that I love about it is still there, which is the intensity of it. And obviously I really like horror films, and I have a love of melodrama and horror, the more intense genres, I suppose. And it sort of goes back to this sort of Greek tragedy or grand guignol theatre and and different kinds of art forms that are about expressing really extreme violence or extreme emotions. And so with Old Boy, I just look at it and and think, well, yeah, this setup is very convoluted and very contrived, but there's no way to get to that scene where he's sobbing and licking the villain's Mm. shoe and saying, I'll do anything, I'll do Mm. anything if you just don't tell my daughter that I'm her father and uh, because this is after the the um, incest situation. So there's no way to create that level of emotion without doing something fairly unusual. And for some reason, that's kind of fascinating and cathartic to see a character driven to that sort of extreme. And I don't know why. Maybe it's because we sort of hope and believe that we'll never be in a situation like that. So it's sort of liberating to sort of observe it without being too close to it or or something. Mm. Um, But I think all of the Vengeance films to me are sort of like moral fables. And that's where he really does go back to Dostoevsky or or those kind of novelists. You know, those films got labelled as the Vengeance trilogy, which I think a lot of people interpreted to mean that they were Vengeance films, like in terms of like that genre... But they're not really. Like, if you watch them hoping to be excited about, you know, really get a kick out of someone having some great vengeance, Mm. 
like Dirty Harry style or whatever, you're not going to get that. Like you're going to be really disappointed. That's so true. I, I didn't think of it like that because the, vengeance seems to be a theme in every single one of his films, but you don't get the visceral thrill you get from a Dirty Harry or, or whatever. Well, like occasionally you might get it a little bit, like in Lady Vengeance with the attacking of the child murderer. Mm. But it's it's short lived and it's compromised and it's ambiguous. And, and so they're actually about whether vengeance is a good idea at all, whether it's all just futile. So there's not a really satisfying, like, oh, I'm going to kill this person, I'm going to feel amazing afterwards. <laughs> Nobody feels great at all. That's what's interesting to me, because there are not that many filmmakers who are sort of working on that level. I think a lot of them are replicating genre ideas without having given it a great deal of thought and they just want to do something cool and kick ass and that's good but you know what are they contributing to the sum of human knowledge or whatever I mean I would probably say that about Tarantino a little bit like I love a lot of his films but sometimes he's just working on a pretty surface level and you can sort of watch some of his great films and be emotionally fairly unaffected Mm. whereas I think Park Chan-wook is going to the opposite extreme like there's no way that you can be emotionally unaffected so that in itself is sort of more of a commentary about violence I guess which is not to say that those action scenes in old boy aren't exciting like when Mm. you know the main character comes out of the lift and just takes on a whole team of you know people with a single is it an axe or a stick I don't know hammer a hammer it's it's exhilarating. So he manages to have he those does. bursts of but exhilarating. But the fascinating thing about that scene, just having rewatched it, I had in my memory that it was a more kick-ass scene than it is. Like, I had in my memory that he just fights them off seamlessly and it's just amazing and virtuosic. Mm. But if you actually watch it, like, he sort of does fight them off a bit and then he stumbles and falls down and a few of them kick him and, and then he sort of stumbles back up again and, you know, swings the hammer around and hits a few more. And so he does manage to get away, but... In a really clumsy, weird sort of way. Mm. And he's not really a comic book hero in that scene. He's actually, like, driven by something. Maybe, like, he's driven by the extremes of his emotion or whatever. But he's not superhuman. He's not that skillful even. Like, it's quite sort of, like, weirdly clumsy. Mm, It's a weird subgenre of uh, guys attacking hundreds of attackers in a corridor <laughs> yeah, yeah. that have sort of started with that and continued with like the raid and the Netflix dead yeah. of the series. And but like... I think the Tarantino version of that would be, yeah, this is just kick-ass and yeah. righteous vengeance. But in this, it's more like I'm doing this because it's all I can do, but I'm not really enjoying it. And it, it has this sort of existential hero sort of thing going on with it where it's kind of like, well, I've put in this situation where I have to kill all these people, but I'd rather just be sitting by myself, you know, moping. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's interesting. A couple of things I'd like to get your take on, um, just sort of watching all of his films in, in, in such a short amount of time, uh, aside from the fact that all of his, his characters are sort of driven by something that happened a long time ago in their past. He, he does like people who have been planning things for a long time. <laughs> yeah from The Handmaiden to Stoker to, you know, Old Boy, someone who set a plan in place 10, 15 years earlier Mm. and is now executing it. It's Mm. the long game. But also within that, he seems to portray mansions as decaying prisons. Like, you look at these ornate, you know, The Handmaiden and Stoker in particular, these ornate houses, which are really portrayed as, as sort of the same type of prison as the asylum in I'm a Cyborg, but that's okay, which... 
can we take a second to acknowledge the best title of his filmography? Yeah, Maybe any filmography. Title. Not yeah. a great film, but <laughs> the best title ever. I'm a cyborg, but that's okay. It's definitely an interesting film. It's probably worth seeing. But yeah, yeah. I would agree it's not one of his better ones. But I, I think that's a really good point. And I mean, there's two things there that you're talking about. One is the sort of long-term plotting plan thing, which is fascinating. But the other thing about the mansions, I mean, I think... To me, that points to his interest in sort of strange subsets of society. So sort of like a microcosm of society, but in a weird little world that is often quite small and very specific. So if you think about JSA, for example, it's all around the sort of guard stations on the border of North Korea and South Korea. And it it literally this joint security area. And that's such a bizarre world to set a film in. It's so tiny and so specific. But he does that beautifully. And I think, having read a little bit about his you know, early influences, that's a little bit to do with the political situation when he was growing up in South Korea, sort of in the 80s, where it was quite a constrained society and there was sort of war drills and weird behaviour, like weird sort of rituals that you had to go through. Like mm. there would be a drill and, and something would happen, you have to run over here and go over there. And um, So sort of he's very interested in ritual and you can see in a lot of his work that there's this sort of absurdist lens because he's observing these people who are behaving in an odd way in their little world. So, for example, in Old Boy, there's this whole kind of hotel set up which is only to be used for like kidnapping people and keeping them for a long time and torturing them or you know which is a bizarre idea really but he sort of makes that believable and then that's the world that he's looking at so i think it's to do with the sort of specificity of these worlds that he falls into and he kind of illustrates them in meticulous detail so that they seem real to us which is, you know, in The Handmaiden, certainly. But even in Stoker, like, it's a, such a small world. But we understand the rules of that world, I guess. The other thing that you were talking about... What was the other thing? So, was, so the, yeah, the two things with the long game and, and the mansions, the decaying prisons, which were actually... I didn't, probably didn't tie them together well enough, but <laughs> what, what I was thinking of these mansions, which were built as a tribute a long time ago, and like sort of that old pain or that old vengeance that was put in place, they have decayed over time, and... Uh, yeah, it's probably haven't yeah. articulated that well enough, but it's sort of like the mansion or these big houses represents that sort Past. of yeah, 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 and the fact that it hasn't it hasn't stood up, it hasn't. It's lasted. really interesting, and I think that's one of the other things that I really like about Park's work is the complexity of it. And this is a this is a slightly different point, but it's related to what you're saying. There is a lot of exposition required for most of his stories because they are incredibly complicated. And you have to explain all this stuff that happened in the past. And that is really hard to do. Like, it's combining a literary style with a cinematic style. So it's making these really bold, strong genre films, but then they have all this massive plot that has to be imparted, and and not just plot, but, like, words, because the specifics of voiceover and diaries and really specific memories and things from the past are all sort of layered in there which is incredibly difficult to achieve as I know because I'm working on a screenplay at the moment which is trying to do that sort of stuff it's actually really really difficult but there's something about him that is drawn to explaining (laughs) explaining the complexities of the past and I guess the visual metaphor for that is the house or wherever the setting is 
But yeah, it's a sort of a nostalgic quality, trying to replicate something that's lost. And I, I wonder if that could be partly to do with his interest in novelists who are quite, uh, you know, from another era. Um, and maybe cinema from another era as well, because I know he sort of grew up watching black and white westerns and American films and things that are sort of add a bit of a remove. So there's maybe this sense of nostalgia that's where the past is really, really present in his work. One of the interesting things to me about Lady Vengeance, having another look at it, and because it is one of my favourite films, so you kind of have in your memory like, oh, that's my favourite film. or So you kind of don't necessarily analyse it after that point. It's just kind of set. But looking back at it, it is a really weird film. Like, it's very strange. And I, I wonder why that one was the one that grabbed me the most. I think it's to do with it having female protagonists, possibly. But um, I had another look back on how it was received at the time and the variety review of it is actually quite dismissive. And it sort of praises the filmmaking, but essentially is saying that it's a lesser, it's a lesser work, and the lead actress's performance is a bit weak, and this kind of stuff. And and so, I guess it's an example of him not fitting into what he was supposed to be doing, which is vengeance films about men, I suppose, and sort of tough vengeance films. And then you've got this odd lead woman who's sort of a bit opaque and a bit gentle in some ways so she's not like the kick-ass Tarantino person that people want her to be even though she has her style in the film is fantastic where she gets out of jail and she sort of recreates herself in black leather with the red eyeshadow and cuts off a finger and all all of that like she's like a comic book hero but or anti-hero but she doesn't behave in that way like she's actually quite complicated so it's sort of messing with expectations I guess Um, And I just always remember the scene towards the end where she sticks her face in a white cake. Mm. (laughs) I don't know if you remember that bit. But, like, when I first saw that, because it it references the Christians in the film who are trying to get her to redeem herself, and they bring her a cake of tofu at the start of the film when she gets out of prison, and that's sort of representing purity, I think. So there's that kind of idea. And then later in the film, when she's been through all of this stuff and tried to get revenge on this child murderer and the people who set her up she's gone through all of this stuff and then her daughter appears who she's been estranged from and there's this white cake and she just her face just falls in the cake and it's this absurdist sort of ridiculous moment but it's incredibly moving and incredibly emotional and so even not quite understanding when I first saw it what that was all about It's just sort of mind-blowing to see something that bold, I suppose, (laughs) Mm. because it's risky. Like, it may have not worked at all. Mm. Um, I suppose for some people it doesn't work at all. But, you know, going back to the genre thing, there's no attempt to stay within a safe genre that would make it comfortable for everyone. It's kind of breaking out of that in weird directions all the time. Well, it's been uh, a pleasure to look back at his films again and uh, to have you on the show Bryony thanks for joining us oh thank you it was great to talk to you and we'll see the rest of you next month bye bye